Now, NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, whether you're listening on TalkZone by podcast, through the archives of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel, or connected through the incredible content of our Facebook page. Our guest today, Deborah King, Ph.D., has been a successful healthcare professional for over 40 years as a registered nurse, psychotherapist, and educator with an MS degree in nursing and a PhD in clinical psychology. Her areas of clinical and teaching practice have included trauma, critical care, community and public health, hospice, mental health, and behavioral medicine. About her spiritual life, Deborah writes, I was raised in the Catholic Church with a lifelong interest in spirituality and began studying comparative religion and philosophy in college and later in graduate school. I had several spiritually transformative experiences leading up to my near-death experience in 2008. I have felt intuitive and connected deeply to the unseen world of the soul and spirit since I was a little child and was always very sensitive to other ways of knowing, which I tried to integrate with my religious upbringing, but found this challenging. Deborah King, welcome to NDE Radio. Oh, thank you, Lee. It's wonderful to be here. It's great to have you. And Debbie, to begin with, you told me in detail the story of when you were eight years old and how you were guided probably by an unseen spirit or a guardian angel to not get kidnapped. Could you tell us a little about that story? Sure. I always was a sensitive child and sensitive to things that were going on in the unseen world. But on this particular day, I was actually maybe seven or eight years old. And I was sent to the store by my mom to buy two quarts of milk, which was not unusual at that time. We used to get our milk delivered and sometimes it would freeze and we would run short of milk. And I remember milk was at that point, 26 cents a quart. And my mom gave me a dollar and said, Deb, go up to the store and bring me back two quarts of milk because we're running a little short. And I did. And I was walking back. I was within about a block. I grew up in in Queens. We were in an area called Whitestone. And I was within about a block from my home and a car pulled up. And I can still see the car literally crystal clear in my mind. It's etched in that kind of sensory memory. And a man leaned over and said, hey, sweetie, can you please tell me where the RKO Keiths is, which was a a local movie theater, a historic movie theater. And I knew exactly where it was. It wasn't too far from my home. It seemed like a reasonable request, but I remember thinking, I'm not quite sure I could give him exact directions, but I'll try. And this was at a time in the 60s where you were respectful to adults. You didn't say, you answered, yes, sir, no, sir, responded, and you were polite. And I gave him directions. In fact, I remember even telling him to follow the bus route because I knew exactly how to get there. I had taken ballet lessons next to this theater. We happened to have our recital at the theater. So I knew exactly how to get there. And he didn't seem satisfied with those directions. He said to me, you know, I'm having trouble hearing what you're saying. Can you step closer to the car? 
And I remember thinking, okay, I was a little kid. I speaking pretty loudly. So I started raising my voice and I repeated the directions. So now I'm thinking he's got to have heard me pretty much yelling. And he said, sweetheart, I really can't hear you. We need to step closer to the car. He repeated the request. And Mm. at that point, I started getting a very eerie feeling inside and thought that I might have seen the window on the driver's side go down a little bit more. It was like partially raised. Now, in my adult brain today, I think there really were not electric windows at that point. And I thought I might have seen, can't swear to it, somebody crouched down on that passenger side. Mm. And I remember thinking, oh, there's somebody there. Why are they hiding? And I took one step. And something came over me, which I still cannot explain, except it was a pervasive knowing that this was not a good situation. And I felt, again, getting the chills telling you this, I felt pull from the back of me. And the only way I can describe it is that it was such a tangible and real feeling that it felt like I was... And I describe it as I've had many litters of kittens in my family over the years and would watch the way a mama kitten would pick up their baby by the scruff of the neck. That's what it felt like. It felt like somebody was grabbing me from the back of my neck. And I was totally convinced that one of my neighbors had come out of the house to help me, that they had seen this happening. And I turned around expecting to see an adult or somebody there. And Lee, there was nobody there. There was physically nobody there. And at that moment, everything in my being just said, run. And I ran as quickly as I could. And I chuckle now because I was very careful not to drop those quarts of milk because I didn't didn't really even realize the gravity of the situation at the moment, but did not want to get in trouble for dropping those quarts of milk and ran up my steps. It was down the block. We were in a corner house located right near a service drive approaching the Whitestone Bridge. So if somebody was to abduct a child or grab a child or do anything at that moment, they could have been on that service road and over that bridge so quickly that nobody would have ever known the difference. And the car followed me and it followed me to my house. I ran up the steps. My mother, for some reason, had the front door locked. And I remember banging furiously on the, ringing the doorbell multiple times, banging on the door. And I could hear the car idling in back of me. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, if she doesn't open this door, somebody is going to grab me. And she came to the door, thank God. And I burst into the door trying to tell her what happened. And as soon as that man saw my mom, he just gunned it. And I could hear, I could still hear to this day, those tires screeching like around the corner and onto the service road and onto towards the Whitestone Bridge. It's really a good thought that our guardian angels can pick us up like a kitten by the scruff of the neck when (laughs) it's needed. Yes. (laughs) You had an an out-of-body experience in January of 72 when a drunk driver ran a light and hit your father's car. Tell us about that. Yes. My father was driving and I had a day off from school 
And he was driving me actually to my friend's house, which was in a, an area called College Point, not too far from our house, right near the Whitestone Bridge. And the last thing I remember is actually sitting at an intersection and sitting at a red light. And my father was one of these drivers that when the light turned green for him to proceed, he would always wait just a second and look both ways to make sure nobody was coming through the intersection. And I remember the red light. I remember the light being about to change or changing. I can't really remember if I remember seeing it green, but that is the last memory I have of being in my body. I remember nothing of the impact. The next thing I remember is being out of my body and looking down on what looked like a really horrific accident scene. And I remember trying to make sense of it. And I pretty quickly recognized my father's car and I recognized my body. And I could not make sense of this. Here I'm watching the whole scene from above the accident, clearly out of my body. My father miraculously was able to get out of the car. It was a terrible wreck. This was a, it was either a tow truck or a a panel truck. I really don't really remember the details of the type of truck, but it was a truck and he had run the red light. I was hit broad. The car was hit broadside. We had, we didn't have passive restraints or airbags. I was thrown my, by my father's description, pretty much almost completely into the back seat. The car turned over several times. And when it landed, I was plunked back into the front seat. And where I was sitting in the passenger side, that door was pretty much flattened. My father said, almost to the base of the vehicle. He was, the car that he was driving at the time, which was his pride and joy, was a Lincoln Continental. And it was a very heavy car, which he was convinced for years really saved our lives. But when I looked down, I could not make sense of this. This was very confusing to me. And I felt, interestingly enough, no fear. There was a combination of a sense of, peace kind of being suspended out of the body and a true sense of compassion for my father, who at that point had gotten himself out of the car and was running. I remember watching him putting his hands up to his head and being frantic, running around the car, trying to open the door, which of course was ridiculous. There was really no door left. Mm. And I was like, oh my gosh, dad, I'm okay. I'm okay. It was so distraught for him. And I couldn't make sense of it. I just knew that was me. And I really didn't know what to do. And I started seeing emergency vehicles arrive and police cars. There was a construction site actually right near the accident scene. And I started seeing workers that were up on platforms and scaffolding coming down to assist. And the very next thing I remember is opening my eyes and being back in my body. It was that quick. And I was conscious of, I realized I was bleeding. There was glass all over me. I was in tremendous pain and I couldn't move. And I heard my father's voice. He had come to the side of the vehicle and he said, oh my God, Deb, you're awake. You're okay. Thank God. Don't move, honey. Just stay there. 
And yeah. that was it. That was it. I was I had tremendous orthopedic injuries and spent the better part of my senior year in high school in a wheelchair, but I was okay. But I told nobody of this. Nobody. Mm-hmm. I didn't even tell my own mother. Of your out-of-body experience. Yes, of yeah. my out-of-body experience. Did you think about it or did you just put it out of your mind? Say a little bit of both. Yeah. I would say that I largely at that point, especially during my recovery, put it out of my mind, but it was always this, it's always in the back of my mind. What was that about? Like how, and I remember my father recounting details of the accident and internally saying to myself, yeah, I remember that. I saw that. But of course, there was no way I could have seen that because I was unconscious in the car. Had a concussion and was knocked unconscious. But I never told him. Yeah, I saw you running around. I try, saw you trying to get me out of the car. But I think it haunted me. I don't want me to use a spooky word, but it stayed with me for a long time. Like, how could this possibly happen? Well, it occurred to me that maybe when five years later as an ICU nurse, it might have inspired you to do what you did to save a patient. So tell us about yes. that. Yes. Yeah. So after that, I completed my nursing education and was working in the intensive care unit at Johns Hopkins. And it was a very long evening shift. And we had a fairly young man, I would say he was maybe in his 40s, who was very sick, but we did not anticipate a cardiac arrest. And he had one suddenly. And we were always preparedly for that to happen in that environment, but sometimes we were more bracing for impact. And at that moment, we really, we weren't totally prepared, but we were, if that makes any sense. And we worked on this man for quite a while and giving him several rounds of resuscitation drugs, defibrillations, it was not going well. And you get that sinking feeling after a while that this is just not going well. And just, we were trying everything. And I was the charge nurse that evening. And the procedure at that point was that the charge nurse and the chief resident generally ran the resuscitation. Generally, we communicated and the team followed suit. And he was looking at me with that knowing look, which was, Deb, I could read his mind, basically. (laughs) This is not going well. And we were not getting the patient back. And something came over me. Again, I cannot explain it, but it was a very clear knowing. Just like, I kind of describe it almost like I saw a billboard in my head that read, keep going, you're going to get him back. And there was really no rational reason for feeling that. There was, he was not doing well. He was It's just not going well. And I said, the resident looked at me and he said, Deb, I think we should call it. Meaning, you know, we should call for the time of death and we've done enough. And I just looked at him and I said, can we, let's just go one more round. Can we just go one more round? And he looked at me and he kind of winked and he said, all right, Deb, we'll Mm -hmm. go one more round. And we did. And we proceeded to go one more round with resuscitation drugs, everything that was at that time in medicine, standard protocol. Mm -hmm. And we got this patient back and we were literally, we were shocked. 
we, we were, oh my gosh, it worked. And I remember internally saying, well, I don't know where that came from, but I'm glad I listened to it because it worked. And he, he wasn't, he was unstable. We were trying to stabilize him. I went off duty. I was off the next day, reported for evening duty. The second day after that, I worked at that time a three to 11 shift. And I heard and report that he was doing better. At the, after the resuscitation, we were concerned because he was not waking up. And I had spoken with a colleague of mine on my day off. And she said, we got him back, but he's not doing well. He's just not waking up which was, is always the worst fear is that resuscitation was successful, but the patient has suffered terminal brain damage and is not going to regain consciousness. But I heard a report that he had, and I was overjoyed and that he was extubated. His breathing tube was out. He was off his ventilator. And I immediately, I was charged nurse that evening and I was making rounds and I went to his room immediately. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to just speak with him if I could. And I walked into the room and he looked at me and I remember his eyes getting wide and he looked at me and he said, Oh, it's you. You're uh, hello. You're the one. I actually turned around (laughs) thinking like, okay, what did I do? There's somebody in back of me. And he said, no, 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 it's, it's you. You were the one. I said, well, what did I do? And he proceeded to tell me the details of his entire resuscitation. I mean, down to every single detail. He said, you know, nurse, I watched the entire thing. And he pointed to the corner of the room. Now, I remember when he did that, I got the chills because I remembered my car accident at that point. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, I know what that's about. because. That happened to me. There was an an instant knowing that what this man was telling me was credible, although I had no explanation for how it happened. And he told me details that what the chief resident was wearing, the fact that we had to call the anesthesiologist because we had trouble intubating him, which we did. He even told me where I was standing and what my hair looked like. I had very long hair in the 70s. I used to put it up when I was on duty. And by the end of a long shift, it was pretty straggly and falling down. And he said, you know, you look like you were so tired, nurse. But when that doctor said, let's call it, he wanted to give up on me. And you said, let's go one more round. And I remember freezing in place because that's exactly what I said. Hmm. And that's not something I would expect a patient to really say or know. And he laughed and he said, in my day, when somebody said, let's go one more round, it was the last call at the bar. And I just remember freezing because I knew instantly that this was true and credible. I had no explanation for it, but I remember the words in my head. And they were simply, this changes everything. I felt like my entire worldview, everything I knew about science had truly been shifted at that moment. And he said, thank you, nurse, for doing that. And I I said, you're welcome. But I could barely speak because I, I was trying to make sense of it and couldn't. I just knew it was true. I didn't know how it happened. Why it happened, I just knew that it did happen. And I said nothing 
to anybody, did not share this experience with anybody. Certainly, I wasn't going to share it with any of my colleagues at that point. But that man did well and left the ICU. And he was with me in spirit for many years. I never, ever, you know, that was a life-changing experience for me. And this was not the last you saw of that. No, it was not. So let's jump today. Just happened to the day we're recording this show just happens to be exactly the 14th anniversary of the time when you had a heart attack and, and the resulting NDE that you had. Well, I'll let you tell the story. Why don't we jump ahead to that? Yes, actually. And thank you so much for acknowledging. This is always a wonderful day for me to celebrate life. Every day is, but it was December 15th, 2008. And it was a time in my life when I described this as I was experiencing really a tsunami of stress. My father, who I was incredibly close to, had just passed away from pancreatic cancer and I was heavily grieving. My heart was literally broken. My husband was working at the time as a bank regulator, as was the height of the financial crisis in this country and elsewhere. And he was involved with traveling across the country, unfortunately, closing a lot of banks that were not doing well. My youngest stepson, who was autistic, was just really derailing in a big way. It was a very stressful time, and I was missing my father tremendously. And I said to my husband, you know, I really want to drive up to my father's grave. He was buried next to my mom, about a two and a half hour drive from my home in the mountains of Pennsylvania, where my mother was from her hometown. And it was a warm day, like a freakishly warm day, a day that you would say, okay, it's okay to do this drive. And he said, okay, be careful because you look really tired. And I know you're not feeling well emotionally. And I said, yeah, I just want to be near my father. And I made the drive up, didn't tell any of my family up here that I was visiting because I really didn't want to, when you're grieving that heavily, you just, I just wanted to be alone. I wanted to be alone with, I wanted to pray. I wanted to connect with my father. I didn't want to celebrate. It was 10 days before Christmas. I didn't want anybody making merry. I, I didn't feel like that. And I visited, drove back. It was another two and a half hour drive back. And I got to the house and my husband ran out into the driveway to greet me. It was just about dusk, just past dusk. And I wanted to be home before dark. And he said, oh, thank God you're home. And he said, come into the house. And he looked at me, he said, Deb, you don't look good. And I said, my exact words to him, as he tells it, were something to the effect of how am I supposed to look? My heart is broken. And he said, why don't you just go to bed early? And he said, at that point, I robotically put down my purse, hung up my coat and walked up the steps. And he followed me upstairs and I turned around and said, what are you doing here? And he said, Deb, he said, I've been trying to get you to take better care of yourself for many years and go to bed early and you'll forgive me, but you never really listened to me. And you're flipping me out a little bit because you just, you didn't even question me. You just went upstairs. 
And he said, I'm just going to stay with you for a while. Do you need anything? You know, want a cup of tea? He was just being very nurturing. But he told me afterwards that something intuitively came over him to tell him that I just was not okay. And I said, I'm going to get ready for bed and I'm going to read for a while to try to relax. And he said, okay, is it okay if I just sit next to you here and we'll read together, which was a, we did that often. That was not unusual. And I was comforted by the fact that he was there, but pretty much he would, he says within five minutes, I sat upright, leaned over the book, put my hands up to my head and said, oh my gosh, I'm so dizzy and slumped over the book. And he said he knew instantly that this was okay. This is not good. Now, side point, my husband is, you know, he's not a healthcare professional, but nobody in my house was ever going to go down from a cardiac arrest without a fight, right? I had taught this for many years. And my father, who lived with us for many years, had a cardiac history. And my husband was so busy that he did not want to be certified in CPR. So I said, all right, you know what? I'm going to teach it to you. I used an American Heart Association video for hands-only CPR. He learned it. And never in a million years did I think that the reason that this would come in handy at some point would be to resuscitate me. <laughs> be right? for you. That's right. Because it would not have been what I would have thought. I And I had no traditional risk factors for cardiac disease. And by that, I mean... I had no ischemic heart disease. I still do not have it 14 years later. I actually did not have a heart attack. What I was suffering was a cardiac arrest, a, an electrical event where my heart literally went into a chaotic uh, rhythm that did not sustain perfusion. And he immediately started CPR. I mean, he didn't know this. He just knew I had no pulse no respiration. He did exactly what he was, you know, what he learned, mm. dialed 911. Thankfully, we had a, a, a phone right near the bed and continued resuscitation until the team got there. You said when this happened, you entered a black void. Did this happen immediately upon the cardiac arrest? Yes. I cannot, I really don't know the answer to that. I don't know. I mean, resuscitation proceeded in my home for quite a while. Hmm. In fact, that's another, just, I think another important feature because my husband said the team was getting more and more discouraged about whether or not they were going to be able to get me back. I was transported, had several arrests, I think in between in the ambulance and in the emergency room. I don't know at what point this happened. All I know is that the first thing I remember is being in, I call it a black void, but it was, and I say that because there was no, could not see any boundaries. It was this as if I was floating in comforting black expanse is maybe a better word. There were no boundaries. I was just there. And I remember thinking to myself, where is this place? Not afraid, no fear, a sense of wonder, almost a sense of amazement. But then saying to myself, okay, I think I'm dead. Again, no fear attached to this. Just, wow, I think I'm actually dead. And I really, 
I laugh thinking about this, but of course, what am I doing as a person of science? I'm looking for evidence. So I begin (laughs) the body check, right? I'm literally feeling, this is such a clear memory, feeling for my head, my arms. Okay. No arms, check. No legs, check. No body, check. Okay, Deb, you are definitely out of your body. And the next thing I remember thinking is, okay, you really are out of your body. You have died. Hmm. What's next? And I got the sense that although this was a comforting, soothing blackness, it wasn't scary at all. I knew I wasn't going to be there for a long time. I don't know how I knew that. I just knew it was, I felt like I was in a holding place. And as that started to occur to me and I accepted the fact that I was out of my body. I remember my consciousness starting to move and it was almost a sense of, wow, what is this about? Where am I going? And a sense of, I would say some light coming from my body, although I can't really tell you where, but just the sense that I was light in consciousness and I was moving. And I was, I felt like I was propelled gently into a, what I would describe as a, a, just an enormous night sky, a beautiful place that looked like the most beautiful night sky one could ever see through the most powerful telescope, lights, rays of lights, stars, just, I just was in awe. And I was, I was, wow, what is this? And just most of what I started to see looked like, the best way I can describe it, looked like a spider web of light. That's the way I describe it. Lights appeared to be connected by rays of light, threads of light, and it was purposeful. I didn't know what this was, but it seemed like it was all a purposeful presentation of light and energy is the only way I can describe it. And the black void at that point was gone. I was in the middle of light and tremendous peace. I think you said that you became aware that your five senses didn't apply. Yes. This was a whole different situation. Yes. Yeah. So at that point, and I say I was seeing these things, but I had no body. I was experiencing them, but I became quickly aware that my eyes, my ears, you know, my, our five senses were, it's just nothing there was working. I was experiencing this as pure consciousness in another way of taking in information and an experience that was not of the human experience. And I was aware of things that were happening all around me almost, I would say 360 degrees. I could see and feel the energy from the lights and the stars and the, what I really soon became aware of as being souls all around me. There was nothing linear. There was no time. I had no sense of my prior life, my future, how I got there. And most importantly, I really didn't care. You know, it was the closest, it was as in the moment as anybody could be. And I was in the moment, everything was happening right then and there and all at once. And it was 
hard to describe, but that really was my experience. And I remember at one point looking at a part of the matrix that was extremely bright. And I will also say there was background, almost like a backlight of light that was different from the stars in the matrix. Almost there was a background light and then there were lights that were definitely in this matrix of light. And soon I became aware that those were all alive, that every one of those lights was a soul. And this fascinated me. And I was like, this makes sense. This makes total sense. And (laughs) I knew, I recognized some of those, they were, none of them were in human form. Uh, They were some I recognized and I really, to this day, couldn't tell you who they were. I just knew at that moment, I was like, okay, I recognize this light. I recognize them by their vibration and by their energy. It's the only way I can describe it. And I remember saying, wow, that backlight is so bright. You better not look at it because it's going to hurt your eyes. And that's how bright it was. But it was exuding such a loving and peaceful presence that I thought, well, this is not going to hurt me. This is a a love that I just never want to be separated from again. And so I looked, I looked at it and nothing happened because, of course, I I wasn't seeing it with my eyes and I was absorbed into it. And I felt like this light was permeating the deepest part of me. Like I was known by this light in a way that I had never been known in my human form. And it was emerging, emerging of myself with this light and with the matrix. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, I'm part of this. I am connected to this wonder and this grandeur. I was overcome with just the wonder of it all. And everything seemed purposeful. And I felt not only connected, but I felt like I was an important part of this. And this, I could not make sense of this. I thought, okay, how could I be a part of this amazing, whatever this, this is just little old me. I accepted it, but and I, it was wonderful, but I really couldn't understand it. At that point, I was still trying to figure it out. I think you've also said that it was a harmonic vibration that you interpreted like sound. You called it the best choir ever. Yes. The lights and the matrix also I felt were, I was submerged in what I would say a sound that they were producing. That was, it was the most beautiful sound I have ever heard in my life. There were no human voices which is interesting. It was not like I heard singing or a choir, although it sounded like incredible harmonies. I felt the harmonies and the vibration within me. I didn't just hear it. I felt it. I became a part of it. And there were even dissonant sounds that made total sense and added to the beauty. It was just an immersive experience the lights, the love, the peace that I felt, the sound was 
incredible. In fact, to this day, when I meditate, I can be there just like that. If I start meditating on the experience, I hear and see and experience moments of that that just lift me completely out of my physical surroundings. But the sound was incredible. And then you mentioned, too, scenes from these other souls of their lives giving help, love, compassion. Oh, yes. Tell us about that. Yeah. At this place, in the experience, I remember just total surrender, feeling just so loved and just so peaceful. I started moving again. It's almost as if at every point where I surrendered to the experience, then something else happened. And I moved further into the matrix and started seeing, I would call it a life review, but the interesting thing is that I don't know that's an accurate description because I was shown events. Some of them were from my own life. The largest majority were from the lives of the other lights, the other souls, which I knew now were very alive and living beings in spiritual form. And I was shown events in front, like in front of them. The way I can describe it is if you were looking at a slideshow that was going really quickly, like flashes of experience. And you want to say, hey, slow down. I can't really see these or take them in. And they were images of childhood or Unfortunately, some traumatic things that people had gone through, global conflicts, wars, just scenes from every slice of life that you can imagine. And I was most upset because I couldn't focus and I couldn't interpret them. And I pretty much wanted to understand what they were trying to show me. And then I heard, it's not about the experience. Don't worry about trying to see these. It's about the soul's. Look at the souls. No matter what has happened in life to these souls, nothing can harm the soul. Nothing can affect the soul. And when I heard that message, I started focusing on the lights. And everything I was seeing, the flashes and slices of light, especially the traumatic ones that were difficult to look at, started to become secondary. And I was focusing on the lights and they didn't change. And I heard the message, this is who we are. Nothing can change us. We are immortal souls. We have come from love. We will return to love and nothing at all that happens can change this. You see this? And I was looking around and I was like, oh my gosh, look at these things that people have been through. And they're okay. Their souls are intact. And then I heard, except for one thing, there is one thing. I remember thinking, what, what is that? What is that one thing? And then I was shown similar slices of life, but these were all wonderful images. They were images of love and compassion. This was the commonality. People who had They had helped people in life. There was an image I saw of one soul who had actually not only given money to a homeless man, but had 
fed him, helped him to a homeless shelter. These were all images of love and compassion. And I was shown at that point some of my own experiences as a nurse and things in my life, but some were simple, like smiling at somebody in a store or in in one image in a grocery store who looked like they were having a bad day. And I heard this is the only thing that can affect us. And when I grasped that message and looked at the lights, they lit up like a Christmas tree. And I didn't think they could get any brighter than they were, (laughs) but they did. And they vibrated, Lee. They just vibrated. It was just like, this is it. This is who we are. And I heard those words. This is who we are. This is the only thing that can change us is love and compassion. And that's all that matters. And I was just blown away by that. It just was, it was so wonderful to see that. And it it didn't take away the other things I had seen, but it did tell me that this was what mattered. This is what mattered on a soul and a spiritual level. Yeah. And then I think you said two lights came closer to you. Yes. And I embraced this message. And at that moment, I felt myself moving away from the larger matrix of light and from that experience of being shown love and acts of love and compassion and two lights moving towards me. And I knew that I was going to have a personal interaction with these. This was the first time that I really felt, okay, I'm going to have a dialogue. And I say dialogue, nobody was speaking. This was all really a, a, download of information, if you will, or sense, but there was no talking as you and I are talking now. And the first one of those I recognized right away. And it was my ICU patient from the seventies. And I was dumbfounded. I was, oh my gosh, it's you. And he was matter of fact, he was like, yeah, (laughs) It's me. Like, how are you doing? And I was like, wow, I haven't seen you in a long time. And he said, yeah, I'm here to give you a message. And I was very happy to see him. And I remember thinking, wow, he really did make it. I mean, he didn't just make it to survive his, his cardiac arrest. Like, he's still alive. You know, he's still here. And he said, when we encountered each other in my resuscitation, that was not accidental. He said, that was an important part of your story. That was an important part of your life. And that is something that you need to share. You need to share that with healthcare professionals. And I realized that you, you know, you kept that quiet. But the reason that you're here and the reason I'm here with you now is to tell you that that time is over. The time for you to keep that to yourself is over. This can help a lot of people. And I said to myself, well, that makes sense, you know, and okay, I'll do that. I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready for the assignment. I'm going to do that. And it was a very joyful interaction. And pretty quickly, I thought, wait a minute, if I accept this assignment, there's only one way I'm going to be able to do this. And that is that I'm going to have to go back to my body. 
And I did not like this awareness at all. And I said that to him. I said, thank you very much. Maybe somebody else who's still in their body can do it, but I want to stay here. I never, I felt like I was homely. I never wanted to leave. Hmm. He said, you have a choice, but you've already made that choice. And I was completely confused by that. I thought, I don't know where he's getting his information from, but I didn't make that choice. He said, no, it's okay, Deb. You did make that choice. He said, you don't remember it, but you did. And he said, it's going to be okay. He said, you can do this. And I accepted it. And he started moving away. He started moving away from me as light started dimming. And there, the second light became brighter and came into my close to me. And I just melted. It's the only word I can think of because I knew instantly it was my father. And I was overcome with joy. I was, oh my gosh, dad, it's you. And he said, yeah, of course it's me. I haven't gone anywhere. I was like, what do you mean you haven't gone anywhere? He said, well, I haven't. He said, I left my body, but I've never left you. And I'm here and we're as connected as we always were. And I was like, I'm not one to refuse an assignment, but you know what? Now that I'm here with you, I just have to pass. I am never leaving. And we dialogued and he said, he said, we never really left each other. He said, I've never left you. I left the physical world and I've been with you and I'll always be with you. And I said, I don't want to go back. I want to stay here. I was just like pleading at that point. And he said to me, he said, the truth is this place will never leave you. It never has left you. It was with you before you incarnated into human form and it will never leave you. And I will always be with you. And when you go back, not if, (laughs) when you go back, you will never be separated from this place and you will never be separated from love and you will never be separated from me. And I will be with you every step of the way. And I remember feeling, okay, I'm not really okay with this, but you know what? I trust my father. I don't think he would steer me wrong. And I said, okay, dad, if you're never going to leave me and you promise we're never going to be separated, I'll do it. I'll do it. And it was a, just a joyful reunion. And at that point, an acceptance of what he was telling me. And he was as real as you are right now. He was just that real. And I remembered feeling like I was, I would say I was overcome with tears, just with the joy of being in his presence again, but also with the knowledge that I was going to have to leave. And I just said, Deb, just trust the wisdom in what he's telling you. He would not be lying. If we're, he would tell me always the truth. And if I'm not going to be separated from him, okay, dad, I said, I'll do that. And his light faded And that was it. The next thing I remember, I was over the ICU bed, looking down at my body. Now, 
I don't ever remember leaving it, which is interesting, but I do remember returning to it. And I looked down and I saw my body and again, had a memory of the car accident and thinking, oh, here we are again. Okay. At this point, I was now back closer to the human experience. And I was, whoa, I remember this. I remember this. This is, I've been here before. And I looked at my body and I was not happy with what I saw. I saw myself in an ICU bed hooked up to a ventilator, multiple, you know, infusions. I knew what every one of those were. And I saw that my eyes were taped shut and I thought, oh, wow, I don't know what happened to you. You obviously have been in a coma because your eyes are taped shut. I saw restraints on my arms, on my wrists, actually. I couldn't see if they were tied, but I would venture to say that if they were, they were loosely tied. And as a nurse, I know that two things happen. One is that these are put on patients to prevent trauma, right? So they're put on to prevent a patient from pulling out their breathing tube or pulling out IVs. But also when there's a sense that a patient is not going to wake up, they're put on because it's part of a protocol, but to save the family from seeing the trauma of their loved one really tied down tightly They're put on, but they're kind of loosely put on because at that point, the staff are not really convinced that the person is really going to wake up and pull out their breathing tube. And I looked and I thought, okay, this is not good. I have been in a coma. I have no idea how this happened, but I was mildly relieved at that point because I thought, gee, if I'm in that bad of shape, I don't have to go back in there. Okay, I was relieved. Like, I, I'm not going back in there because that body is just not doing well. My eyes are taped shut. I've got restraints on. It looked like a very, just like a death scene. But this made me happy, actually. I was <laughs> like, okay, I don't have to do this. And I kept trying to push some imaginary button at that point to get myself back into wherever I was, and it wasn't working. (laughs) Nothing was working. And then you were back in your body. Yes. And I've had a very sarcastic moment where I thought, okay, I've got this figured out. This is what's happening. I felt so expandedly. I was felt spiritually in such an expanded state. The other thing that occurred to me was there's no way I'm going to fit in that body. And there's just no way. I'm just too, I felt limitless is the best way I can describe it. There's no way I'm going to fit in that. It's too confining. So that's not happening. And when I had that really sarcastic know-it-all moment, boom, (laughs) that's it. I was back in my body and I thought, oh gosh, like you couldn't pull it off. You're in here. And oh, I couldn't breathe. I had tremendous felt tremendous pain. I felt confined. Just, I don't even know how to describe it. Like you were put in a dress size that was 12 sizes too small. I mean, I, or (laughs) just so confined. 
And I remember opening my eyes and being very confused. Like, how did I get here? And hearing alarms. And I recognized that one of them was the respirator alarm. And I looked down on my chest and I saw my endotracheal tube. And I thought, I don't know how this happened, but guess what? You just pulled out your endotracheal tube. And the staff were running towards the bed, just running towards me. Deborah, can you breathe? And I laugh because in my ICU days, I remember thinking to myself, if patients ever knew how big that balloon was at the end of an endotracheal tube, which is about 30 cc's, they would never pull it out because they could do permanent damage to their vocal cords, right? Mm -hmm. And here, this is the first thing that I do is pull out my breathing tube. (laughs) And I was confused, but still, and I was confused, but still pretty much feeling like I was in a spiritual form. Like I really was not connected to my body. I knew I was in it, didn't like it very much, but somehow was still frantically searching for that magic wand I could wave to get out of it. And the nurses and the doctors were running. I think I had also pulled out a few of my IV lines because it was quite a bit of blood and I was breathing okay. And so they were listening to my lungs and assessing my breathing and turned off the ventilator alarms. And trying to get me to speak. And I could not speak. And it wasn't just because my throat was really in bad shape from pulling out the tube. I, I couldn't form words. And they were relentless. You know, tell us your name. Do you know where you are? Do you know the date? Do you know what happened to you? And the answer was, I didn't know any of that. I knew I was in an ICU. I recognized it. And in fact, I recognized that ICU because I had worked in that hospital as a nursing supervisor. So I knew where I was, but I had no idea how I got there. (laughs) And they started yelling, which is comical, because I thought, why are you yelling at me? I can hear everything you're saying. It's not that I can't hear you. I can't respond. And the critical care physician, the intensivist, was just desperate. And he said, Deborah, can you just say something? I don't care what it is. Say anything. And I thought, well, if I don't say something to him, they're just going to keep bothering me, <laughs> bothering me, right? Because <laughs> they want to assess me and make sure that I'm, if my brain is functioning. And out of my mouth, I really don't even know, it wasn't a thought, it just came out of my mouth. I heard, I've had better days. And he jumped <laughs> back, he jumped back like he saw a ghost. And I thought, what's that about? Like, why is he so shocked? I just said I've had better days. And he looked, he turned to the nurse and he said, I think she's going to be okay. And I Uh, thought, of course I'm okay. Like, why wouldn't I be okay? I'm fine. (laughs) I wasn't fine, but I felt it. Now you're back and I guess you're getting your, the mission you were given into focus. We talked about you're writing a book that you've been working on from your journals And another thing, which is very exciting to me, is a children's book that you're expecting to come out next year. Yes, I'm very excited about that. I think that's a wonderful idea. I really do. I think the tentative title is A Journey to the Light. Journey to the Light. Yes. Yes. And I'm currently working with a wonderful artist. And this was, I think, an interesting lesson for me. I had started writing a book about my experiences from the beginning and keeping journals. 
this took a while, Lee. So the first year of my recovery was pretty rough. I had an interesting parallel because I had, I couldn't create new memories. So I had something called an anterior grade amnesia. And I think if you've ever seen the movie or anybody's seen the movie, 50 first dates, that was me for the first year. People would tell me what happened. And an hour later, I would say, okay, exactly what happened to me? Or what, what was this? So I had word finding difficulty. I had an expressive aphasia. It was rough, but I was writing the entire time about my near-death experience. So it's as if my physical memory in my, my physical brain had challenges. Obviously, I had an anoxic brain injury, hmm. but the spiritual memory of this experience was totally intact. So when I thought on it and meditated on it, every detail was intact. The problem I had was with the physical world, not with my spiritual experience. It was with integrating that into getting my speech back and my memory back. And so I went back to those journals and I've kept them diligently over the years and started writing a book and it just wasn't gelling. It just didn't feel like what I was supposed to write. And one day in meditation, I received the message. I heard the Bible verse, be like the little children. You have to bring this message to children first. And in bringing it to children, you will bring it to many other people. And I thought, whoa, okay. I never thought of that. I wasn't writing a children's book. And it made sense to me in our world now, having lived through, hopefully seeing most of it in the rearview mirror, a tremendous global pandemic where we have many COVID orphans. We have many orphans and children suffering in the Ukraine. There are so many children suffering that could benefit by this message that I thought, wow, okay, why didn't I think of that before? This is what I have to do. <laughs> and I came out of meditation, went to my computer and wrote the entire thing in rhyme in probably less than an hour and looked at it. And I thought, okay, this is my first step. And I began recruiting a publishing consultant to self-publish the book and also an artist. And this is what I'm working on now. And once I made that step, the other book I was writing, the message became clear that this had to really be exactly what my patient told me in my NDE. The slant of this book was to healthcare professionals to integrate this into our training and into our clinical experience as part of our clinical competence as healthcare professionals. And so I went back to the drawing board and that's the book that I'm working on now. And that's the book that healthcare professionals, and I speak as a hospital chaplain, are desperately in need of. So I'm looking forward to seeing both of these books when they finally come out. Deborah, oh. we are out of time, but I want to thank you so much for sharing your story and the insights you've gained and the path that this experience has put you on. If someone wanted to get in touch with you, is there a way, uh, an email address or a website that you could give us? 
Yes, don't have a website yet. I'm working on that. But right now I do have a Gmail address and it's Deb King NDE, Deb King NDE at gmail.com. Excellent. Deb, thanks so much for doing this. You're quite welcome. It was just a joy and an honor, Lee. Thank you so much. If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our more than 480 archived ad-free NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button, or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE radio library. And be sure to check out our NDE Radio Facebook page. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at TalkZone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.